you spectacular people. Welcome to this seventh anniversary show of the History Ghost Bump podcast. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, can you believe it's been seven years? I cannot. It is time to celebrate. It is. I've been doing this a long time. (laughs) Yes, you have, darling. Seven years. That's a long time. Seven is the number of completion. That's why there's seven days in a week. But the History Goes Bum podcast is anything but complete. What it has been is the fruition of a dream I had. I've always wanted to be in radio. And I'd stuck my toes in the water with a live internet radio show for a few years and enjoyed it, but it was tough to keep to the schedule. Podcasting afforded me the opportunity to record when I wanted. I just had to come up with an idea, a topic, a subject for this new podcast. I knew I loved ghost tours. And I thought, there's nothing out there in the podcast world that's like going on a ghost tour. So that's what I created. I figured I'd only have a handful of family and friends listening. But if that were the case, then I have a lot of family and friends. History Goes Bump has hit 5.6 million downloads. I never could have dreamed that ever being possible. And it's thanks to you guys, the listeners. History Goes Bump has been through a lot in the years. We started off with a lot of technical issues and a lot of sound issues. And as I learned more about editing and getting a good sound, the podcast got better. We changed around the format here and there and came up with something that worked really well. Something that not only took care of people who just wanted to listen to the topic, but also took care of the thing that we started to create around the podcast. And that was a community, which has become a family for me. A handful of you have probably been listening since the very beginning. A lot of you have been listening for many years. And then there's a special group of you that have invested in History Ghost Bump. This podcast started out as completely listener-supported when I first started it, and I honestly didn't think anybody would support it. When I got that first person to step up, and they were going to give me $10 a month, I couldn't believe it. There's been even more of you that have contributed a little bit of your hard-earned dollars to keep this dream alive. This show is still over 80% listener-supported, and we really could not do it without you guys. Huge thanks. We really appreciate it. And we love you guys. Thank you to all of you that have shared the show. That's how it gets out to the masses. I've had a great time over the last seven years entertaining you guys while maybe teaching you a little bit too. I hope you've come to appreciate history if you didn't already. And for those of you who were only really into history and weren't sure about those ghosts, maybe I've opened your mind to that as well. A lot of people are like, how did you come up with the name? And really what happened is I'd started a blog that was called History Goes Bump in the Night because obviously ghosts usually go bump in the night. And I was one of those people who liked to focus on the history. And whenever I would go to a city, I'd always do a ghost tour to get the history and the seedy stuff and hauntings and all everything that's good all together. <laughs> everything that we're passionate about. <laughs> exactly. So I started doing this blog and I'd done a couple of entries and then I started thinking, you know, this would make a really good podcast. And so that's how History Goes Bump got started. And I thought History Goes Bump in the Night's a bit of a long name for a podcast. So I took the end of it off and just went with History Goes Bump. Jerry, when we were sitting at dinner at Harry's, asked me, who does your voiceover stuff? He goes, I've never had a chance to ask you that. And I was like, well, you can imagine when I first started the podcast, it was on the cheap because I wasn't making any money with it. And I said, well, Fiverr. I just went over to Fiverr and it's a great place to get creators on the cheap. You know, I gave him really good tips and stuff. But I said there was a guy there who does the intro and I can't remember his name anymore. I feel really bad about it. But I really like the sound of his voice. So I had him do the intro stuff. And then I found another guy who did all different kinds of voices from Australia. His name was Ricky. And on one of his things, he said he could do Vincent Price. And I was like, oh, 
Hot diggity. <laughs> you are my man. So all the little in-betweens that I have about like, you know, that chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. That's Ricky doing those. And I told him I wanted it like Vincent Price. And I said, if you can have his laugh on there every so often. And then I had a couple of girls that I hired that every so often you'll hear them kind of pop in here and there. I contacted Ricky probably about four or five years ago and got some more updated ones. I probably should do that again just to get some variety for everybody. But that's where they came from. Here's to another seven years and beyond. Now, as you guys know, the most important thing to us are our listeners. And ever since the second anniversary of this show, we have focused on the listeners and made it about them. We host a flash fiction contest every year. The rules are pretty simple. It has to be under a thousand words. That's why it's called flash fiction. It has to be creepy, scary, paranormal in some way. And it has to be something that's rather family friendly. We had 21 submissions this year. It was tough to pick the winners. You guys are so talented. We managed to come up with our three winners and two runner-ups, and that's what we're going to share on this special anniversary episode. Thank you to all of you that contributed your talent to this show. All right, we have our first runner-up here, The Curtain Man by Nancy Doy. We're not in Kansas anymore. She remained motionless in her seat for a moment her short, spiky hair as tense as she was. I double-checked myself. I had just reviewed the purpose of therapy, the rules of confidentiality, appointment expectations. I had just invited her to tell me why she was here. Hesitation is fine. It's all fine. I really don't want you to think I'm crazy, but my parents wanted me to come and see you. I replied, sure, I'm here. Let's talk about whatever you want. I'm not sleeping. I wait. I'm still learning. How long am I supposed to wait with a teenager? Okay, is there a reason? Another long pause. She looks at me, sizing me up. She decides to trust me. It's the curtain man. The curtain man? She stops again, long pause this time. I hope my supervisor can help me stop feeling so nervous. Will all patients be this difficult? Yeah, the curtain man. He terrifies me. It starts every night around 12 and I can hear whistling outside the house, like someone is calling for their dog. She stops again. Oh no. Wait, breathe, I can do this. Tell me more. I usually can't see him, but the room gets real cold every night. I hear whistling far away and then thumping. No one else in the house can hear it. I haven't, I haven't slept in days. I look more closely. I can see the circles under her eyes. Her mother told me she didn't do drugs. She was a good kid. I was looking at some sort of auditory and kinesthetic psychosis. Okay, I can do that. I studied that in school. Sounds kind of scary. I'm terrified. I don't know how, but he's in my bedroom every night, standing behind the curtains. When I tell my parents, they come in and pull the curtains open, but nobody is there. But as soon as they leave, I can hear him there, breathing. My heart goes out to her. She really is suffering. I wonder if there's a possibility that your brain is playing tricks on you. She responds, I don't think so. It's real. It seems so real. I get more information, but I settle on a diagnosis of brief psychotic disorder. She doesn't show any of the secondary negative symptoms of schizophrenia, and there's no history of this running in her family. I prescribe a mild antipsychotic and schedule her to return to the office soon. She returns two weeks later looking even more haggard than the last. No sleep, huh? She shakes her head. She starts to cry. I haven't spoken to my supervisor. I know what to do. Deanna, you've got to challenge your thoughts. Let's do some imagining, shall we? 
Let's imagine the curtain man here. She looks up at me and her eyes are huge. It's okay. I'm here. I won't let him hurt you. Let's imagine that the curtain man is here. What does he look like? Her breath is ragged. I, uh, I don't think I can. That's okay. What does he sound like? He, he laughs at me and has a low voice. He says he knows things. It's scary. Okay, let's challenge this. Take a breath. What would you like to say to him? She's silent for a moment. I, I want him to go away. Good, I encourage her. Anything else you want to add? I want him to go away and scare someone else. I give it a moment to sink in. Wow, excellent, I respond. And if I were the curtain man, I would say, I'm sorry. Yep, the curtain man says he's sorry, and he would say, I'm going to find somewhere else to go. She looks down and breathes deeply. She nods her head. Yeah, okay, okay, that feels different. Good, let's check back in. It looks like the meds might be working, and you did really well today. Wait till my supervisor hears about this. That night I get ready for bed. Work went really well, and I'm learning quickly. My patients seem to be responding well, but I especially hope that Deanna can get a good night's rest once she learned to face down her psychotic fears. Ah, the bed feels so good. I close my eyes, and then I open them. It's midnight, and I don't know what woke me up. A long pause. There, in the distance, I hear it. Is someone walking their dog? The hairs on the back of my neck raise, and a chill goes down my back. Why is it suddenly so cold in here? I jump as something pounds against the side of my house. What? What's going on? Who is that? I yell. Silence. I jump up, turn on the lights, and grab my phone. I'm terrified, but I peek outside. Nothing. It's so quiet for so long. I return to bed. I'm exhausted. I've got to sleep. I'm too wound up now, so I scroll through my media. I smile with some of the posts from the HGB crew. But then I hear it. The breathing in my room. Is it coming from behind the curtains? I'm frozen in place. I've got to do something. I whisper, Who's there? Silence. Then a sinister chuckle. <laughs> and a low voice responds, Someone who is not sorry. Thank you for the invite. Wow, thank you for that, Nancy. I think everybody's going to have a little trouble sleeping tonight thinking about the curtain man. And our second runner-up, is Heaven's Waiting Room by Jennifer M. Guthrie. Brooke slowly opened the door to her childhood bedroom. She sat down on her twin bed and gazed blankly at the bed across the room. It had belonged to her younger sister, Sarah. She slowly felt the familiar searing grief rise in her chest. How could this happen, she thought, as she began to fight back the hot tears that unapologetically ran down her cheeks. How could she really be gone? Life and death go hand in hand, she heard a voice say. One cannot have one without the other. For each life, no matter how well lived, will certainly end in death. No one can escape it. We each have our destinies laid out before us, and only a finite number of days. We each must do what we can, while we can. The main difference between life and death is that life is finite, while the other, death, is infinite. One is guaranteed, while the other is not. One can wake up in the morning and carry on about his or her day, as if there are a million more to come, only to have it abruptly stop the next moment, leaving behind devastation to those still carrying on until it's their time. Life goes on, even if people don't. Brooke looked out the window at that moment as if she was hearing the voice from that direction. 
I'm actually going crazy, she said as she shook her head and wiped her face. As she was looking out the window, she met and held the gaze of a beautiful red cardinal. It sat in the magnolia tree and turned its head just enough to meet her gaze. This was no ordinary bird. Brooke knew it was Sarah. The exchange only lasted a few seconds, and the bird, just as quietly and gracefully as it had landed, flew away into the light of the late October afternoon. Brooke momentarily felt comforted. Sarah was always thinking of others and had such a beautiful soul. She was Brooke's soulmate and best friend. Brooke felt her heart break again as the tears returned. How would she go on? Would she feel like this forever? Who would love her like Sarah? The sense of loneliness and brokenness overwhelmed her to the point that she couldn't breathe. She knew she had weighed her husband, but it wasn't the same. Life as she knew it would never be the same. She realized that she would have to learn to live her new normal and cope as best she could. Her thoughts then returned to the phone call that she received from Sarah's husband, Sean, urging her to come home to Birmingham immediately. It's cancer, he sobbed. It's back. The next few days were a blur. The funeral preparations had to be approved. Brooke just mostly went through the motions from greeting sympathizers, to hedging off family drama, to helping Sean pick out a dress for Sarah. She wrote her obituary and her eulogy. She held her mother as she wailed for her loss. They quietly buried her sister in the family cemetery in Sullivan, Alabama, and then returned home to her parents' house in Mountain Brook. Finally, Brooke chose to quietly slip up to her childhood bedroom while everyone was downstairs. Before she could lie down, she spotted her sister's brightly colored quilt draped across the foot of Sarah's bed. Not wanting to undo the cover, she decided to get up to retrieve the blanket. Brooke covered up and slowly sank into the mattress. Then she caught the scent of something that she wasn't expecting. It was the most beautiful and familiar scent. It was Sarah's floral perfume. It has to be the quilt, Brooke thought as she breathed in the precious scent a little more deeply this time. Tears again welled up, and she finally passed out from pure heartbroken exhaustion. Brooke found herself in a room that looked to be a waiting room of some sort, or a library. She felt as if she had been there before. There were books lining the walls in front of her, and a cozy waiting room with oversized sofas to the left of her. She looked to the right, and she could see cubicles, and could hear phones ringing and the clicking of a keyboard. She heard soft voices greeting the callers as if it were a professional call center. Sarah? Brooke called as she saw her little sister moving toward her. She couldn't believe it. It was Sarah, and she looked so happy and healthy. She was wearing a pink t-shirt, jeans, and no shoes. Typical Sarah. Oh, I just knew you would come, Sarah exclaimed as she hugged Brooke. I am so glad you're here. I've been wanting to see you. Where am I? asked Brooke, looking around. You're in Heaven's waiting room, Sarah explained. What do you mean? Brooke asked. I'll show you around. She took her sister's hand and they walked up a couple of stairs onto a platform. Over here, she pointed to the call center area, is where we book our visits. Visits? Brooke repeated, confused. Yes, we book our appointments to meet with our loved ones. You know, bring them comfort, reassure them that we are okay and happy. Sarah smiled. I'm glad you took the appointment. Brooke didn't say anything, but looked around again. She was so confused. It looked like a library, but smelled like a coffee shop that also had a call center. She was totally amazed. Sarah looked so healthy and peaceful. I want to talk to you. Sarah took Brooke's hand and guided her to one of the oversized sofas. Brooke was amazed at how comfortable the sofa was. She immediately felt herself relax as Sarah took a seat next to her. I want you to know that I love you, and I'm sorry I didn't tell you that my cancer was back. I just wanted to protect you. I know the things you did for our family and Sean and how strong you've been the past week. I am grateful, and I love you. Please don't be sad. Life is as it should be, and we will be together again one day. I'm always with you. She looked over at the call center again and then said, 
I can always make an appointment, but we can only do so many. Just then, a bell rang, and instinctually, Brooke got up and followed several others through double doors and down a hallway and into the elevator. She turned to look at her sister one more time as she crossed the threshold and saw once again that Sarah was healthy and happy. Sarah waited for her to get into the hallway, and then she slowly turned and walked into the most beautiful light she'd ever seen. Brooke awoke to a dark room. She reached for her phone to check the time. It was 10.30 p.m. She sat up and sniffed the quilt one more time, and the smell was gone. It was as if she had never been on the blanket in the first place. She held the quilt a little tighter and knew that Sarah had visited, and everything was going to be okay, even though she was grieving. She knew that they would always have Heaven's waiting room until they could be together again. All right. This is our third place winner. It's by Kate Kapanier. She's going to be getting a logo t-shirt and a medal. And the name of her story is The Spectre. The pounding ache behind Lowell Abernathy's temples hadn't subsided in weeks. He knew it was from the mounting pressure of the upcoming trial. The stakes were high, and he was still unsure of how to keep the very guilty defendant from being found out as such. Having been top of his class at William & Mary and the youngest partner in the history of his firm, Lowell wasn't used to courtroom losses. When his doctor recommended a relaxing seaside visit to reduce his stress, it didn't take Lowell long to find the perfect place away from the bustle of Charleston. The young couple he decided to rent a room from was a fisherman and his wife. The fisherman would be away all day on his boat, and the wife was on strict instructions from her own doctor to rest, as she was in a very delicate condition and was needed in Charleston for an important matter next week. Lowell looked forward to the peace and quiet. Hello, Mr. Smith, the kindly fisherman greeted Lowell at the train station by the alias he had given. It was irresponsible for Lowell to leave town so close to such a big trial, and he wasn't eager to draw attention to that detail. As the old horse slowly pulled the wagon along the dirt road, the fisherman chattered away about the best place in the entire inlet to see the sunrise, and about the July 4th festival the next day. He then sucked in his breath awkwardly before asking, If it ain't too much trouble, I ask that you stay close to the porch at dusk. That's when the specters come out, and I can't have those around my Louisa. Just one look, and it could harm our baby. You can't tempt him to come close by going out and riling them up. Lowell stifled a laugh with a polite cough. (laughs) He knew that country folk were very superstitious, but the idea of a ghost causing harm to an unborn child seemed utterly ridiculous. Afraid he hadn't been quick enough to hide his initial reaction, Lowell feigned interest. How do you keep specters away? Well, mostly just don't bother them, the fisherman explained. But if you see one, it's best to just shoot at it. You're not going to kill it, of course, because it's a specter. But the noise really bothers them, and they leave. I didn't bring my rifle, Lowell said, but I'll be sure to let you know if I happen to see one. You do that, Mr. Smith, because I don't want them near my home. When they arrived at the cottage, Lowell went to his small bedroom and immediately started back to work, trying to find a solution for the defendant. After a few hours, he went to the porch to enjoy the specterless sunset that the fisherman had clambered on about earlier. To his surprise, Louisa was already sitting on the porch. He greeted her with a nod and a smile. She returned both and then said, I do hope you won't mind if I sit out here a bit with you. The fresh air makes me feel better, and sunset's my favorite time of day. I love watching the evening fog roll in from the inlet. They sat watching the fog swirl around the rocks at the edge of the fisherman's property. Louisa prattled on about her garden and how she missed Charleston. She'd grown up there and wanted to raise her family there, but she'd witnessed a murder, and the stress of being the only witness had caused her husband to move her to her family's home here. Lowell tried to listen, but the strange shapes the fog made played tricks on him. 
he found himself lost in the fog while still safely on the porch. More than once, he swore he saw something like a person by those rocks. Could it be the specters that the fisherman feared? No, that would be crazy. And yet, that is really what it looked like, though it was hard to make out anything definitive in the mist. Concerned by his own confusion, Lowell excused himself and went to his room for the evening. The next morning was July 4th, so Lowell decided to take the couple-mile walk into town alone while his hosts went about their normal routine. He enjoyed the stroll, making sure to send a telegram to his partner before stopping by the train station where he saw the performers coming in for the festival. Then he stopped by a ladies' clothing boutique and selected a beautiful gray summer shawl for Louisa as a thank you for her and her husband's hospitality. Once back at the cottage, Lowell left the shawl and a note by Louisa's bedroom door before heading back to his room to rest. When he awoke from his afternoon nap, it was evening again. It was time for him to meet Louisa for the promised sunset rendezvous. As he went to the porch, he noticed the thick fog out by the rocks was swirling around in the breeze again. This time he knew he saw something more. His pulse racing, he went back inside. The fisherman was just getting back from his day on the boat and saw the look on Lowell's face. What's the matter? He asked immediately. That specter, it's out by the inlet, Lowell pointed to the gray figure by the rocks. You have to go shoot at it. Don't wait. The fisherman nodded as he rushed to the back room for his rifle. You go check on Louisa, and I'll take care of it. He stumbled over himself and out the door. There was no way he would let the specter hurt his family. Lowell went to Louisa's room, but not to check on her. He gathered up the note he'd written her and shoved it in his pocket. He waited until he heard the gunshots. Then he grabbed his bag and strolled out the front door into the carriage he had hired to wait for him. The carriage brought him to the train station, where he left on the 6 o'clock train for Richmond. He wouldn't return to Charleston until long after his father's murder trial was dismissed. He couldn't risk anyone recognizing him as the Mr. Smith that advised the poor fisherman to shoot his own wife, the only witness to his father's crime. What a great story, Kate. And here we thought he was being charming by buying a gray shawl for that poor Louisa. He just wanted her to look more like a ghost. Our second place winner is Jenny Knowles, and she's going to be receiving a long sleeve logo t-shirt and a medal. Jenny didn't give it a name, so we're going to call it The Woman. The cab of the ambulance was lit by the soft, ambient glow of the radio positioned between the seats. Occasionally, the slight crackle of interference filled the silence. The two EMTs sat without making a word, lost in the cracks and crevices of their minds. Beyond the windshield and safety of the ambulance, the world sat veiled in a warm, misty darkness. The moon and stars were shrouded by thick, dark clouds that threatened to open up and spill a summer rain at any moment. The eerie peace of the night was disturbed as dispatch came through the radio. Medic 40, Medic 40, be en route to 525 East Maple Street for a medical alarm. The alarm company has attempted to make contact and was unsuccessful. With a deep sigh, the two responded and headed towards the residence. East Maple Street had once been a bustling neighborhood with a mix of families and elderly scattered throughout. A few years past, a deadly flood had flowed through, taking out many of the quaint little houses and a number of lives. Edwin Haynes, the paramedic on the ambulance, remembered the flood vividly. The waters had turned and rolled through the streets filled with debris from the houses, yards, and fields, along with a few bodies. The image of an unknown person bobbing in the murky waters haunted Edwin. They had been screaming, or attempting to, but the roar of the water had been so loud that they couldn't be heard. Shaking away the image, Edwin scanned the dark and dejected houses that lined the street. I didn't think anyone still lived out here, Dino. 
Dean Jacobs was a very matter-of-fact man, not easily unnerved by much. He'd encountered many scenes that would turn the stomach of lesser people. Ed, you know how it is. Probably some little granny that can't afford to move. Now, help me find the address. Ain't many numbers left up. Looking left and right, Ed noticed the soft yellow glow of a porch light a handful of houses away from them. Pointing to the light, Ed called Dean's attention to it. That's got to be the house. It's the only one that seems to have power. Ed informed dispatch that they were on scene and were informed that there was a key under the mat. Stepping out of the ambulance and grabbing the bag from the back, Ed turned to face the house when a shiver went down his back. It felt as if they were being watched. Shaking his head, Ed began to follow Dean up to the front door. Dean retrieved the key and slid it into the rusty doorknob. The knob turned roughly and with a little push from his shoulder, the door creaked open. Dean clicked on his flashlight, illuminating the encompassing dark living room, or what had once been the living room. Vines and mold laced their way up the wall, creating a natural wallpaper that crawled with unseen creatures. The odor of previously waterlogged carpet permeated the air, making it thick and acrid. Hello? EMS? Dean called out into the void unlit by the flashlight. Unease creeped into Edwin as they eased further into the seemingly abandoned domicile. Turning his head towards what appeared to be a hallway, Edwin noticed the faintest glow of light from under a closed doorway. Tapping Dean on the shoulder, he nodded towards the light, and they started down the hall. As they reached the door, Edwin could feel his pulse and breathing quicken. He took a deep breath and held it as the door slowly swung open. Edwin breathed a sigh of relief when he saw the hunched back of what appeared to be an elderly lady sitting on a worn bed in the center of the room. Her back to them, Dean called out to her. Hello? Nothing. Huffing, Dean muttered something about being deaf and began to move closer to the bed when something about the room struck Edwin as odd. Everything else they had encountered in the house had been in varying stages of decay and rot, yet this room was pristine and neat. In a panic, Edwin opened his mouth to tell Dean to stop as Dean reached forward to touch the woman's shoulder. As Dean was just about to make contact with the woman's shoulder, she quickly turned her head. Dean screamed in horror at the sight before him. Her skin hung from her skull like melted wax, oozing and dripping onto the dirty and torn skirts of her dress. One eye fell out and rolled to the floor as the other glared from its socket. Her jaw hung askew and patches of her hair were missing. Her hands, folded neatly in her lap, were devoid of skin and the bones were held together by a spiderweb of muscle and tendon. As Dean clumsily backed away, Edwin noticed that the room itself was changing. The colors were fading as if someone was turning down the saturation. Soon, the room matched the rest of the house with its state of decay and desolation. Edwin's stomach lurched as he observed the old woman's head turn on its neck, causing the bones to grind and snap. When it stopped, her head had turned completely around to her back, staring at the two. An unearthly and heart-stopping noise emitted from her rotting jaws as she growled at them. I'm hungry. Howls of fear echoed through the home as the two raced back to the living. Behind them, they could hear the thump and slide of the old woman's body as she dragged herself towards them in an effort to assuage her unending hunger. The living room door slammed shut as they approached it. The two briefly glanced at each other, passing a look of unspoken understanding, and kicked open the front door. As Edwin scrambled into the ambulance, he could still hear the thump and drag from the house. 
Glancing briefly as Dean sharply turned the ambulance around, he noticed the front door shut once again, and the light that had beckoned them in no longer was lit. Edwin quit the very next day. I think I would have quit too if I'd been sent on that call. No, thank you. Thanks for your contribution, Jenny. And finally, we have this year's winner in the Flash Fiction Contest. This is by Maya Stewart. She is going to be receiving a hoodie with the HGB logo on it and a medal. And I just want to throw out there that Maya is 14 years old. This is her story, gone but not forgotten. Memories. They're as elusive as a shadow in the dead of night, or as pungent as rotting flesh. They might slip through your fingers like water in cupped hands, or they'll fill your head with screams and shouts and pleas to be noticed, to be remembered. Memories shift and warp, ripples across a calm pond. Even if you try to lock them away in the darkest depths of your mind, try to forget, you'll never be able to change what's happened. The past always comes back to haunt you. Dim light spilled from under a closed door, sending shadows dancing across the walls, their forms contorting in the flicker of a lone candle. Silence hung heavy in the air, like the whole building held its breath in nervous anticipation of what was to come. Soft footsteps cut through the deafening silence and moved towards the door. They pause and are replaced by the sound of knuckles rapping against wood. The door is eased open, but no one enters the room, instead waiting until the disheveled man hunched over a desk, acknowledges their presence. The man at the desk, his graying hair tousled and dark bruises lingering under his tired eyes, looks up after shoving aside a mountain of paperwork. Yes? He addressed a second man, younger and more full of life, who lurks in the doorway. Sir? The newcomer, identified by a tag reading simply, J. Anderson, steps into the office. A letter for you. The older man gestures for the letter, sighing with impatience. (sighs) Anderson hurries forward, and unbeknownst to him, hands off a piece of the not-too-distant past, better left forgotten. Jay Anderson slips out of the room, leaving the man alone with the unmarked envelope. The man slid open the seal and let a slip of yellowed paper flutter onto the desk. He absently unfolded the sheet and began to read. Dr. Blackwell, I presume you and your establishment are prospering and that good health finds you. The letter began with quaint pleasantries in looping script, but soon the tone grew darker, the writing primitive. You've not forgotten me so soon, have you? The writing seemed familiar to the doctor, but he couldn't pinpoint why. He ignored the nagging sense of familiarity and continued to read. You've not forgotten me so soon, have you? For I have not forgotten you, sir. Your face lurks within my mind, leaving me vulnerable to the memories. I cannot distinguish dreams from reality for the night terrors blend them together in a twisted marriage of slumber and insanity. My skin burns with the ghostly pain of the torture you subjected us to. You should be locked inside your own institute, for your mind is more lost than most of us within its walls. If not in the realm of the living, then you shall pay for your sins in the great beyond. You may have forgotten me, but the dead do not forget." With a shaking breath, Dr. Blackwell read the name and date inscripted at the bottom and let out a cry of terror. Ethel Byrne, December 13, 1935. 
December 13th, 1935, today's date. But Dr. Blackwell knew it was impossible for the addressee to have penned a letter today. In a frantic scramble, the doctor tore through old patient files until he found the one he sought. He placed the age folder before him, his heart pounding a tattoo against his chest, and slowly opened the tattered file. He thumbed through the pages until he stared at a grainy photo tacked to a curling page. A wild-looking woman stared up at him, her blackened teeth arranged in a taunting sneer. Though the photo was black and white, despite the many years since he had last laid eyes upon her face, Dr. Blackwell could still picture the exact shade of her fiery red hair and the sting of her cold green eyes. The type beside the photo was brief, but it still sent an icy chill creeping down his spine. Patient name and number. Ife Byrne, 0666, 23 years of age, native of Ireland, female, suffers from homicidal mania. Committed January 17, 1919. Died December 13, 1930. Blunt force trauma to the back of the head. The final words hung behind Dr. Blackwell's eyes, bile creeping up his throat. Something shifted in the corner, a darkness hiding in the growing shadows. Dr. Blackwell could make out the form of a woman, her hair spilling down her shoulders in inky tendrils. Show yourself! He tried to force authority into his words, but the slight waver in his voice betrayed him. In reply, the shadow peeled back its lips to reveal a smile that glinted in the light. A breeze swept across the room, and the flame of the candle was extinguished, the scent of smoke lingering in its wake. Four men were huddled in the dingy hallway, sneaking curious looks at the office door. Two policemen strode from the room and passed the group, not sparing them a glance. What do you suppose happened? One of the men inquired, his voice as oily as his unkept hair. I reckon he caught wind that the fuzz was onto him and made sure they wouldn't take him. Didn't want a tainted reputation, he did. I heard his wife wanted to split, and he died from the shock of it, his comrade offered. Jonesy, weren't you the one who found him? What really happened to old Blackwell? The third man asked, turning to the fourth. Aye, that I did. The coppers say it was blunt force trauma to the back of the head. Beat his skull in, they did. Thing is, he couldn't have done it to himself. The door was locked from the inside. No way out, either. He paused for dramatic effect. Only a ghost could have got in and out like that. His friends chortled at the thought and turned back to the room to continue speculating on what led to the late Dr. Blackwell's demise. Somewhere, in a place we all return to someday, Ife Burns had her ear pressed against the veil as she listened to the men talk, a smile playing across her ethereal lips. The dead do not forget. Kelly, those were wonderful stories. Thank you to all of you who contributed a story for the Flash Fiction Contest. For those of you who were not any of the winners or the runner-ups that we read on this special, we always save those for the Christmas Eve special and read those around the fire right before Christmas. Yes, we do. And thank you so much for all the submissions. It really made it a tough choice this year. It was. We had so many. I think this was the most submissions we've ever had. I believe so. So thank you to you guys. We appreciate all of you tuning in to this anniversary show. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.